0: I just want to uh, thank you guys. We have made it to the last chapter of Jonah. So uh, we are at week four. Um, it's been a privilege to be able to, to fill the pulpit for the last four weeks and to, to work through this book together. And so um, it's, a, it's a good time. It's an exciting time, a time, of a time of a lot of learning and growth for myself and hopefully uh, for some of you as well. And um, this morning, the way I want to start us, um, I want to start off with prayer One of the reasons why is, um, I don't know about you, but when we get up to come on a Sunday morning or anytime the church body meets together, right? Um, God's word tells us that where two or more are gathered, that he'll be present, and so um, that you're coming to be in the presence uh, of God and to worship and glorify him, but do you come with an expectation? And That's how I want to pray as we start this morning. Do you come with an expectation? An expectation, not that God's going to change the heart of somebody else in the room but that he's going to change your heart. Are you willing t- to let those walls come crumbling down that we have built up around our hearts so that God can keep molding us into his image? And so that's how I want to open us in prayer today, that we would all take a moment just to go before the Lord, come and let him know, God, do something great today, because you can, and I want you to, and I'm willing to put aside whatever it is that's going to be in the way, to stop it, to let it happen. And so let's open with prayer. Uh, I am going to be silent for just a moment and just allow you all uh, and myself included to go before the Lord and just seek out that expectation today for what he wants to do um, in your life and in my life. God, we come before you humbly this morning, and God, I don't know how we can spend time in your word and in your presence and not walk away changed. So Lord, for myself, Lord, for the congregation, Lord, we just ask that you would move in a mighty way. God, that you would work in our hearts, that you would mold us into who you want us to be. God, that you would transform our minds. And God, that uh, we would just gain and grow in our love of you as a result of what we see in your word today. It's in your name I pray. Amen. And so, um, there's a guy that you may have heard of. His name is Abraham Lincoln. And uh, I want to share a story with you as we start off. Uh, He had a secretary of war named Edwin Stanton. And uh, this particular man was angered by an army officer that was accusing him of favoritism. And so Stanton goes and he begins to complain to the president. Um, and uh, President Lincoln suggests, hey, why don't you write the officer a sharp letter? And, uh, and so Stanton did. And he brought this strongly worded letter to uh, President Lincoln. And uh, Lincoln responded, now what are you going to do with it? And he was surprised. And he was like, well, I'm going to send it. And Lincoln just shook his head. He's like, no, you don't want to send that letter. Put it in the stove. Burn it. That's what I do when I've written a letter when I'm angry. It's a good letter. You had a good time writing it, and you feel better. Now burn it and go write another one. Anybody ever said something in anger that they wished they wouldn't have said? This is what we see in chapter 4 with Jonah. He speaks out of anger. Out of anger. Like for us, I'm sure we've all been there. Whether, even as a kid, whether it's an I hate you to mom and dad, which you, you said because you were angry at the time, but you, you realized maybe that wasn't really what you meant kind of a thing. Uh, or as adults, we say things that we shouldn't say in our anger. Um, and these things, these things happen. And we see this with Jonah. And the problem is once your words are out, they're out and they ain't coming back in. Once they've been heard, they've been heard. And so what we're going to see is that Jonah doesn't hold back his words that are spoken in anger in chapter 4. And yet scripture reminds us in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, about something about our words. Here's what it says. Um, A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. See, our words reflect our heart. And so what we, what we recognize and what we understand in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah is we see his heart. We see Jonah's heart through his angry words that he is sharing um, throughout the book. And so we're going get, to get, get a real gauge on where he's at and, and really what he thinks. And so um, this morning, uh, we know that Jonah, through the first three chapters, this man has been through a lot, right? Right? He disobeys, he flees God, God pursues him, God uses a fish to rescue him. Then all of chapter 2 is Jonah being thankful that God has saved him. Then we get to uh, the end of chapter 2, and the fish throws him up onto dry land. Chapter 3, God's like, hey, this thing I asked you to do in chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to do it again. Go do it. Jonah obeys. Then the people respond, and they repent, and they believe, and they, they desire God, and then uh, God relents from this disaster that he was going to do. And then we arrive at chapter 4, which opens with an angry Jonah. And we see his heart. You see, Jonah's obedience was there, but his heart still needed some work. And uh, I think we can fit that bill sometimes. Sometimes our obedience is there. We do what we know we're supposed to, but our heart still isn't there. And God's going to continue to work in us. That's the good news. He continued to work in Jonah as well. And so I want to do as I have the last few weeks and ask uh, that as we get ready to read Jonah chapter 4, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning? Jonah chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah left the city, and he found a place east of it, and he made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you didn't labor over and did not grow. It appeared in one night and then perished in a night. But may I not care more about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals." That was the reading of the Word of God. You may be seated this morning. And so, we read this, and it's it's interesting. The first thing we read is that Jonah is displeased and he's furious, and then it says he prays. Now, this prayer is going to be much different than his prayer of chapter 2, where he prays out of thankfulness for what God has done, and here he's praying in anger. And by the way, as, as we get into this, I do want us to understand that it's okay to share our anger and our frustration with God. Okay? That's not a problem. He can take it. He can handle it. He's bigger than you. He's bigger than me. He can handle it. It's okay to do such things. But the problem that we're going to run into is uh, that Jonah's anger isn't a righteous anger. And that's where the issue comes into play. And so, why does he pray? Why does he go to God? Why is he angry? Because I knew you'd be gracious and would relent, so kill me now, is his response. Does that not sound like a strange response? It's a very strange response. See, um, and B- Benjamin Franklin says this, anger is never without reason, but seldom with a good one. It's never without reason, but seldom with a good one. Thought about that. Like, okay, maybe to some degree in his mind he has the right to be angry, but it's not a good reason, Right? And so shouldn't he be excited that God's chosen to save and rescue, uh, as we read later, over 120,000 people? I mean, he was surely excited when God used his message in Israel to expand their borders, right? He prayed in chapter 2 of his thankfulness for God rescuing him. And here, when someone's being rescued, he's angry? See, anger is an emotion you feel when your expectation of justice goes unmet, And Jonah thought that God was being unjust in his dealings. And so the question becomes, and God asks him several times, does Jonah exhibit righteous anger or unrighteous anger? See, righteous anger can be good uh, when it's under control, such as when Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple because it's not right for people to make a marketplace out of the temple courts. That's righteous anger. He was totally um, within uh, his power, within his rights, uh, under self-control to do that. Unrighteous anger, however, is dangerous. And whenever our anger is directed at God for being God, which is what Jonah's anger is, he's mad at God for being God. That's weird. But I think we do that sometimes. He's mad at God for being God, and so his, his, his anger is very much unrighteous, being mad at God for being God, saying that God's not who God says he is. And so what we're going to see in this passage are a few things about what happens when we do things out of an unrighteous anger. And So let's start with the first three verses. The first thing that comes out is that unrighteous anger takes issue with the character of God. It takes issue with the character of God. And we read this in the first three verses. Okay, Jonah was greatly displeased. He became furious. He prayed to the Lord. And then he he shares um, some of God's characteristics. And then he tells God to take his life from him. See, Jonah here is angry because the Ninevites repented and then God relented. He doesn't believe that God was just in his dealing with the Ninevites. In Jonah's mind, they deserved destruction. But that's not what God chose to do. Now, As we get started, there's some things we need to point out. This phrase, greatly displeased, in chapter 4, verse 1, here's what it's really saying. Uh, The word there um, is the word ra in Hebrew, which means evil. He's telling God that God's actions are evil. That's what he's doing. When he's greatly displeased, he's saying, God, your actions are evil, Your actions are displeasing. Your actions are disastrous. And this idea of being furious, y'all, this isn't just like your regular run-of-the-mill, I'm a little bit angry today. The word here for for anger means he was hot. He was fuming. His anger was boiling over. Think of the most angry you've ever seen somebody, and Jonah was worse in this case. He was flaming mad. Okay? Okay? Um, over the top, angry with God at this point. And so Jonah goes on and he uses God's own character to try to justify his obe- disobedience in fleeing to Tarshish. Did you catch that? I ran here because I knew this about you. And he basically is blaming God for him disobeying and running away. Does that sound familiar? Does Adam not do the same thing when he sinned? He blames Eve, but what does he say? The woman that you gave me, right? He blames God too. It's amazing how we can't take ownership of our sin, isn't it? And so he does the same thing, and he's blaming God, and he quotes a passage about God's character that we read at least nine times in Scripture, and one of them is in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. And so it says, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. You go ahead. There you go. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. You see, Jonah loved those attributes of God when they were shared with him and with Israel. He hated those attributes when they were shown to others like Nineveh. And that is a problem. See, Jonah saw this deferment of judgment as a weakness on God's part and he disapproved of what God was doing. See, Jonah didn't believe they deserved grace and compassion. He thought God should display his anger and that he should judge them quickly and if you remember, God gives them 40 days basically as a grace period. That wasn't quick enough for Jonah. He thought it should happen much faster. And so he has issues with God. He has issues with God showing steadfast love, showing his covenant love to people that weren't the Israelites. And he thinks they should be destroyed. Jonah desires judgment on Nineveh that he wouldn't want for himself. That's interesting. See, Jonah believes these characteristics should only be shown to the Israelites, which is ironic, right? Because he himself is rebellious. In other words... He thinks he's deserving of God's grace and mercy, but they aren't. He's not the only one. We do that. Let's go back to Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9. This is one of the key verses of the whole passage, of of the whole book. And what does it say? It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then we read here in chapter 4 his response, when salvation belonged to the Lord and the Lord chose who he was going to save. And you have to question, did Jonah really mean that? salvation belongs to the Lord, because here, instead of saying, God, you can save who you want, Jonah's trying to play that role, and trying to tell God who who he should save. And so he's questioning these things. And as much as I want to be mad at Jonah, there are times i got to ask myself the same questions. Do I really believe salvation belongs to the Lord? Do I really believe that all people are deserving of the grace of God? Those are questions we have to wrestle with. Do we believe that someone like a Hitler or like a Jeffrey Dahmer, who people say did give his life to Christ, do we believe those people are as deserving of God's grace, his love and his mercy and his salvation as we are? Do we, does others receiving grace disturb us? Because for Jonah, he would rather die than live in a world where God showed grace to his enemies. He'd rather not be here anymore then watch his enemies receive the grace of God. Now, Jonah himself is not the first uh, prophet to to ask God uh, for death. Uh, In 1 Kings 19, Elijah does while sitting under a tree. Uh, I don't know what it is about sitting under a tree, but there it is. And so he does as well in light of Israel not repenting. He's like, just kill me. You know, taking it upon himself that, it's his fault, but it's not. See, God being merciful to his covenant people, being merciful to those uh, to, to the Jews, to the Israelites, was expected, but now God is directing this love at people outside of the covenant. And in effect, what he's doing is he's bringing them under the covenant of mercy. And so Jonah here is heated. All right? He is flaming hot mad. And it's not the only time in Scripture we see this. In the book of Luke, chapter 15, you guys remember the story of the prodigal son? Right? The older brother is infuriated because the father chooses to show grace to the rebellious son. He's infuriated. It's the same thing. It's no different. Jonah is mad because somebody else is receiving grace that he doesn't think deserves it. The prodigal son, his older brother, was mad at the father because he doesn't think the son deserved grace. We see it in other places in Scripture. And yet, It pleased the Father to save the Son. Just like it pleases the Father to save the people of Nineveh, because God rejoices when the dead are brought to life. God rejoices when the lost are found. Jonah wasn't rejoicing. See, Jonah had certain expectations of how God should do things. Here's the thing. We don't get to tell God how to do things. We don't get to tell him how to do his job that he's way better at than we are. We don't get to tell him that. And Jonah basically is trying to do that. It doesn't turn out that well. All right? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 15, it's part of one of the parables that Jesus shares. And he says, don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? See, the people are gods, and he can do with his creation what he pleases, and Jonah is jealous, and here's what I started to wonder. I began to wonder, is Jonah, maybe in some sense, maybe Jonah is comparing his sin to others. We never do that, right? We never compare our sin to other people's, but that's what I think Jonah might be doing a little bit here, that he may have run away and disobeyed, but he didn't slaughter anyone like the Ninevites did, and that's way worse. The problem with comparing sins to others is where's the line? Because scripture is clear that the consequence for breaking any part of God's law, for any one sin, is death. And so what we see here is that Jonah apparently has this mindset that there's not room for both of us here. Like it's a one or the other kind of deal. And so he ends verse 3 by telling God he wants to die. He's mad at God, but he's unwilling, and, and he's even willing to go before him for judgment. Isn't that interesting? It's like, you know what, just kill me. Well, what's going to happen if Jonah dies? He's going to go right before the judgment seat of God. Is that really the place he wants to be while he's angry at him? It's almost like Jonah's giving God an ultimatum, either kill me or kill them. And we see God's answer over the next few verses, through verses 4 through 8. And this is the second thing we pick up about this unrighteous anger, is that it fails to remember and recognize God's mercy in our lives. And unrighteous anger fails to remember or recognize God's mercy in our lives. Throughout the whole book of Jonah, who receives more mercy than anyone else? Jonah. Throughout the whole book. God in his mercy calls him to go to Nineveh to begin with. God in his mercy sends a fish to save him. God in his mercy allows the fish to vomit him out. God in his mercy calls him again. And gives him a second chance. He receives mercy after mercy after mercy throughout the entire book. Because at any moment, God could have looked at Jonah and been like, you know what? Your heart's pretty evil. You really deserve this. You really deserve this. So I'm just gonna let this happen to you. Like, he could have done that at any moment in his sovereignty. But he chose grace, he chose mercy. And even in God's response to Jonah in verses 4 and 9, when he asks, is it right for you to be angry? He's even asking this calmly with compassion. He's not going off on Jonah. He's asking him a simple question. Is your anger justified? Now, we notice God asks that in verse 4. And you notice verse 5 is not a a verbal response from Jonah. Jonah doesn't respond to God's question. With words he responds by what he does it's kind of interesting he responds by what he does so check this out here's what he does he leaves the city this is interesting in and of itself because this is a city that the message he shared the city was just saved don't you think he would have been welcome there oh you're the one who gave us this message that saved us sure you can stay at my place he would have been welcome at that point in that city because of the message that he had just relayed, and because of of God relenting on that disaster. He would have been welcome there, but he leaves. And he goes to the east. And here's why this is interesting. Throughout the Old Testament, going east is symbolic of rebellion. We see it throughout Throughout the scriptures, there's some evidence of this, that it relates to exile and to rebellion while moving westward as a return to the garden and the presence of God. So when God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden, where does he put the cherubims? At the east entrance. And he banishes them to the east. Cain, after killing Abel, he goes out from the Lord's presence to the east. There's these examples of the east symbolizing this rebellion. And so even in his decision to leave the city and go to the east, he's still rebelling. And here's what we know for sure. We know that Jonah is in no hurry to return to Israel. See, at this point, he has helped their enemies. He's in no place that he desires to return home and return there quickly. He can probably surmise in his mind what may happen. So he goes further away from Israel by going to the east to build his hut in order to see what happens to the city. Did you read that? He does it in order to see what happens to the city. It's like he's still thinking that God's going to destroy it. And he wants a front row seat. Like, come on, man. For real. Like he's still, it's like that that desire. He still has that desire to see the city destroyed. He's watching to see what happens. And then what does God do? He shows him grace and mercy in verse 6, by providing a plant for shade. Because once again, Jonah is a recipient of much grace and mercy throughout the book of Jonah. And so he provides him this plant. He appoints this plant to rescue him from his trouble. And so what's interesting here is physically it protects him by providing him shade from the sun, right? But remember what the word furious meant in the beginning of the chapter. He was hot. He was flaming mad. And so not only is the thought here by providing this plant that he's going to physically provide him, um, uh, provide so that he's not uncomfortable. But it's the idea that he's trying to remind him of his mercy. He's trying to work Jonah's heart back towards thankfulness, and he appoints this plant to rescue Jonah from his evil heart. See, there's more to it than that. And then what's the rest of verse 6 say? Jonah was greatly pleased with the Lord. With the plant. Interesting, right? Verse verse 1, he's greatly displeased with the Lord. And here he's greatly pleased with the plant. Still is not giving credit to the Lord, right? He doesn't say anything here about thankfulness to God. Not at all. This plant that just miraculously popped up in one day should have been an indication that it was from God but Jonah doesn't appear to recognize that. We read in Job chapter 1, verse 21, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Yet the name of the Lord should be praised. And here's the thing, when the Lord gave, Jonah did not praise. And so God then appoints a worm to take out the plant, and then he appoints a scorching east wind that emphasizes the heat so there's this other connection here with the physical and the spiritual because of him being hot, mad, and once again, he does what? Jonah wants to die. Jonah seems to see death as his way out to all situations. Do you guys catch that? How many times has he been like, just kill me? Over and over. And God says, nope. I'm gonna teach you. I'm gonna teach you about me. I'm gonna be gracious to you. I'm not done with you. But guess what? Jonah, or Hazelwood Baptist Church, or Drew, when you choose the hard way, learning can be painful. And it was for Jonah. And so, so far in this book, God has appointed Jonah to the task of sharing the message. He's appointed a great fish. He's appointed a plant to be a means of rescue. By the way, the fish and the plant were meant to be means of rescue. And then he appoints a worm and he appoints an east wind as means of destruction and pain. And yet all of these things God appointed were acts of his grace and his mercy designed to bring Jonah back to him. And then we get to verses nine through 11 and see the third point of this, all right? Verses nine through 11. God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. And then we'll get to verses 10 and 11 here in just a moment. Jonah says he's angry enough to die. Jonah continues to go to that well over and over that he may see God to some degree as unfair to him. He's like, I obeyed. Why didn't you help me? God's like, I did, and you gave credit to the plant instead of to me. And then we read in verses 10 and 11, and God points out some things to Jonah, okay? He points out some things about this plant. First, he points out basically the idea that there was only one plant, Right, It was few in number, which made it less significant. And then he points out, Jonah, you didn't create this plant. You didn't sustain this plant. You didn't nourish this plant. You had nothing to do with it other than you were the recipient of its shade. You didn't do anything to it. And then he points out, hey, this is temporary, This plant lasted a mere day, and it was gone. That's the thing that you care about the most? That's the thing that you're angry about? Something that was going to last a day that you had nothing to do with whatsoever? Jonah valued this temporary thing that he had no investment in over the people of Nineveh. And in verse 11, God speaks of Nineveh. And you notice he calls it a great city again. And I've intentionally not shared this with you, waiting until chapter 4. Remember, it, was, it says it's a great, he uses the term great 14 times in this chapter, if you remember. And yes, it was great in size. But the other reason for calling it a great city, the other meaning of the word, is that what God is saying, that the great city of Nineveh, he's saying this is a city that is important to me. That's what God's saying. This great city, this city that is of great importance to me, that city is a great city. And so God speaks in verse 11, and he makes some comparisons between the people of Nineveh and that plant. How many plants were there? There's one. How many people in Nineveh? 120,000. And many scholars believe that 120,000 is actually only referring to two-year-olds and under, and that the number of folks was actually much greater in Nineveh. Many scholars believe that. And so there's there's so many of them. There's a great number. And then, you know how, Jonah, you had nothing to do with creating or sustaining this plant. These are people that I created in my image that I have sustained their entire lives. And then he gets to the third part. And this plant that was here for one day that was so temporary, the souls of these folks are eternal. And they need me. They're eternal and they need me. And so, God then ends this passage by mentioning the animals, which had great value to the people as a source of income and a source of food. And so, it brings up these types of questions after he makes this comparison Do you and I care more about the unimportant temporary things of the world than we do the souls of people? And that's a question that's hard on our hearts. Do we care more about those things than we do the souls of our friends and our family? Do we care more about those things than the soul of people that we've never met across the world? Maybe even across the street, for that matter, if you've never ventured across the street to talk to a neighbor. Do we care about those things more than the souls of our enemies? Because God is always just. He's always merciful. He's always gracious. He's always loving. And so to wish judgment on another person would mean that you would be okay if that same judgment was given to you. That's hard. That's hard. All it takes is one sin for you and I to have the same, to be worth, the same eternal judgment as the most evil people that ever existed. It just takes one. So how dare we? Do we care more about ourselves than others? Jonah was so caught up in his role, in his nationalism, in his tribalism, that was his priority. Because if Nineveh wasn't destroyed. Right? If Nineveh wasn't destroyed, then he was concerned that that would prove him to be a false prophet. This message I gave to you, well, it, it, because God didn't destroy it, that means that I'm a false prophet because of what I'm doing. And then I want you to think about this for a moment. What do we know about prophets? They're not welcome in their hometown, right? If Jesus wasn't. If Jonah goes back to Israel after saving their enemies through the message... He's not going to be welcome in his hometown when he returns. There's something to that, right? But Jonah kept putting himself first. Philippians 2, verse 3, Paul tells us to consider others more important than ourselves. And so this unrighteous anger stems from misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. Ones that always... Consider earthly things as more important than eternal and heavenly things. And we get to miss opportunities to share the good news with folks when we do that. So as the chapter ends, we see that it ends with a question. Does that drive anybody else crazy? It's like, where's the closure here? There's a question. Jonah doesn't respond. It's just there. And I think that's like that for several reasons. Um, One of them being this. If Jonah wrote the book, and many believe that he did, that probably tells us that he got the message. Because he would have wrote this after it happens, and who is going to write a book that paints themselves in a terrible light on their own accord? Nobody. We want to make ourselves look good. And so, we th- in, if Jonah wrote the book, then this is a sign of obedience by him in writing this out. Um... The other thing I think that's even probably more important than that, why can God end it with a question? Because it's appropriate that God gets the last word. It's appropriate that God gets the last word. You're not going to get the last word in a conversation with God. You're not. And Jonah wasn't either. And so God gets the last word here. He calls out Jonah for not caring for humanity, the thing that God cares about the most. So what could Jonah say in response? But, 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 no. Just don't even try. Just keep your mouth shut. It's not worth it, right? So maybe he finally learns to keep his mouth shut. I don't know. But God gets the final word here. And so as we close out this study, I want to admit something to you all, that you and I are Jonah. See, we like to stay in comfortable situations, just like he would have preferred to stay in Israel. Sometimes we may lack concerns for others, like Jonah did. We may not like what God asks us to do, and we may question it, like Jonah did. There are times we take issue with God's character, just like Jonah. But also, because we're just like Jonah, we need God to save us as well. And so praise the Lord that our disobedience to him isn't the end of our story, because our God is a God of second chances. And so I want to leave you today with some words of encouragement and some application. All right. So some encouragement we pick up from this passage and just this book in general is the fact that God never changes and his character never changes. And that's good news for us. See, our God is a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of justice, faithfulness, forgiveness, and many other things. And God will always be a God of those things. He will never cease to be who he is. His character never changes. That's good news for us in a world where everything else changes. Society changes. The morals of society change for the worse over and over and over. God doesn't change. That's an encouraging word for us today. That God is gracious and merciful to the undeserving is another one. God's gracious and merciful to the undeserving. He's gracious and merciful to Jonah. He's gracious and merciful to the sailors, to the people of Nineveh, to you and to me and to anybody else that will come to him. And here's the thing. God doesn't choose to be gracious and merciful to us because we recognized his grace and mercy in our lives. He did it anyway, whether we recognized it or not, because it's based on his character and his love. And so he's merciful to the undeserving. And then God desires for all people to be saved. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, which, you know, think about Jonah wanting God to do this quicker, right? Instead, God is patient with you. Thank God for that. Because we don't usually get it the first time. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's his heart. We see God save pagan sailors. We see him save evil, horrible Ninevites. And we see him save a rebellious, disobedient Jonah. He desires to save both the Jews and the Gentiles, which means that every person that's living in this world today, God would desire for them to repent. So, application, what does this mean for us? A few things. One, that we can trust God's character. All right, we can trust God's character. We don't have to understand everything about his character y'all we don't have to that's part of Jonah's problem he wanted to understand everything about how God works and it didn't work okay we don't have to understand everything I don't have to understand how God can be a hundred percent love and a hundred percent just at the same time all the time I don't have to understand that but I can trust it because it's proven faithful if you're a believer he's proven himself to you over and over and we can trust him to be who he is to be a constant for us and to be faithful to us. See, Jonah wanted to understand everything, but he couldn't, and we can't either. What we can do is see how he's been faithful and trust him to continue to do that. Another element of this is we need to reflect God's character, all right? We need to reflect God's character. So think about it in the New Testament. God tells us to love others. How? As I have loved you, right? Forgive others. How? As I have loved you. you see, we're supposed to be reflecting. the the character of God that he shows to us. We're supposed to reflect that to others. J.D. Greer uh, put it this way, that recipients of great grace should be dispensers of great grace. You've received a great grace, I have received a great grace, so we should offer that to anybody and everybody. Because what we've received is far greater than we can offer anyway. So offer it up. We need to reflect God's character as believers. And the last part is that we need to share God's message. We need to share God's message, and that's true throughout this entire book. See, Nineveh was an unreached people group. The pagan sailors were on their way to Tarshish, which was another unreached people group. God desires that every people group in the entire world hear his name, that they hear the gospel message, that they hear about how the God of the universe created everything, that he created humanity in his image, that we caused the divide in the relationship between the creator and his creation by sinning against him. But God, in his great mercy, provides a way for the relationship to be saved. Instead of us being separated from God forever, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to be our one-time sacrifice for all sin for all time, to reconcile us to God so that if we believe in him and choose to follow him, we'll be with him for all of eternity, because it's God's desire that all hear that message, and he wants to use you and me to take it to the world. Starting right here in our own community, y'all. And so, in order to have a heart for the world, including our enemies, we got to accept that God has the freedom to show mercy on people as wicked as Nineveh. God has the freedom to show mercy on whoever he deems, whoever he, who he desires. Matthew Henry put it this way, Let the conversion of sinners, which is the joy of heaven, be our joy and never our grief. Let the conversion of sinners, be our, which is the joy of heaven, be our joy and never our grief. We should find joy when someone comes to faith in Christ. And so God loves us, even though we're sinners. He desires to see the lost come to him. He desires to continue to work in the hearts of his people. Jonah, even by the time chapter 4 was over, was not a finished product by any means, but God continued to work on his heart. And we need to begin to love others and see how valuable their souls is, just like God does. Let's pray together. God, we thank you uh, for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your love, for your mercy. God, we thank you that you have God, taken, even in this situation with Jonah, Lord, you've taken this unrighteous anger that he had and done what only you can do. Used it for good. Worked his heart. God, I pray that you would God, just go back to the prayers that we prayed at the beginning of our time in the Word today of what we expect and what we want you to do. And God, I pray that you will use these next few minutes as we have a time of response, God, and a time of reflection. God, just to think about your Word, to figure out how it can impact us today. And God, how as a result of reading about your grace and mercy on others, We should be all the more thankful for the grace and mercy you show us.